Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast where we have a look at the week's news and then do a deep dive on one important issue and try and find a practical way where we can make a difference. I'm Gronny Maguire, Yvette Cooper in the streets, Ed Miliband in the sheets. Basically, I've been told I make a bed a lot like Ed Miliband. I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> anyway, I'm Marie Combe, the Napoleon of the London-based media community, in that I'm French and at some point I will probably try to take over the entire industry and have to be exiled in Elba. This week, I downloaded an app and just by doing that, I did my bit to help the problem of homelessness. At the end of the podcast, you'll find out how. But first, let's have a look at the week's news. And uh, I think we can actually start with Aaron Banks. Everybody's favourite Brexit bad boy. Well, yeah, so last week it was announced that Aaron Banks was under investigation by the National Crime Agency over questions of where exactly the funding for Leave.eu came from. But also, that came out, you know, I think a few days later, and for me that is the big news, apparently the movie Bad Boys of Brexit will no longer be happening. What? Apparently that story of Hollywood just dying to <laughs> to make a movie about Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore and Nigel Farage was not true. I mean, aren't you absolutely heartbroken? Oh. You know, first Avengers, you know, will soon finish as a franchise and now this. This is awful. Where will Brad Pitt get his next Oscar nomination from now? And for some reason now picturing Benedict Cumberbatch playing Nigel Farage. <laughs> the opposite of a sexy dream. Do you think Aaron Banks thinks he can get away with all of this because he's so hot? <laughs> working for me. Uh, so he's under investigation for misusing the data from the leave.eu campaign. Apparently there was email sent to people who signed up for to leave EU and now they sent it to an insurance company and now they're going to get fined because of it. Uh, I think that's that. And my understanding is that the other bit is that some of the money... It's unclear whether it came from Rock Services, which is Aaron Banks' company, which is based in Britain, mm. or from its parent company, Rock Holdings, which is based in the Isle of Man, which is actually illegal because obviously I think money from the Isle of Man cannot be used um, in elections in the UK. Many and Aaron Banks might have been, end up in prison if he is found guilty for up to two years. Apparently there was also funding from a scissors company and a paper company as well. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in fairness, I was working on something being like either either Rock Holdings, Rock Services or The Rock. <laughs> but it's sad. It's always the one who make you think, yep, it's definitely him, who it turns out to be, isn't it? 
It's, yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories where I'm actually, to be honest, like, nearly a bit bored of it. It just keeps coming back and back and back, you know, kind of, like, dodgy funding over the EU referendum. And I've, I have to say, I've basically stopped caring. Like, I feel like it would have to be a properly mad story for me to, like, really care. Like, it'd have to be the level of, like, you know, turns out the Brexit campaign was funded by Macron because, you know, he actually wanted to create an empire of Europe and actually invade the UK, something like that. Maybe I would start caring, but I think that anything below that, I, I just would not. Or, like, or something really random being like, turns out this entire time it was Zimbabwe. Like, <laughs> and then, you know, fine, but yeah, that's that. Can I just ask, uh, in your scenario, Macron trying to take over the world, is he topless while he's doing it, just so I have the right visual image? M- my legal team have advised me to not answer this question. So this week was a, a, a first. Uh, a minister resigned from their post not to spend more time with their family or plotting the demise of Theresa May, but actually up for their principles. <laughs> I know, like, I can't believe like, a ministerial resignation not because of Brexit. Like, I'd forgotten it was even a thing that could happen in the world. Um, but yes, no, last week, Sports Minister Tracy Crouch uh, resigned over delays to new laws on fixed odds betting terminals. So if you're not entirely sure which side of this debate you should be on, just know that everyone's favourite MRA, Philip Davies, is pro-FOBT. So uh... so these, these are fixed odds betting machines and at the moment people can spend... Uh, £100 every 20 seconds on these machines and Tracy Crouch has been campaigning to lower that. The change was supposed to come in this budget where it was lowered to £2. And now this has been delayed for a year and she has resigned in protest. Yes, she has. And I sort of understand. So I think her thing was effectively... that. I mean, A, this is something I think she feels generally strongly about, but B, my understanding at least is that she'd been promised that, you know, it would happen at the budget. But actually, I remember it being trailed in the press. And I think, you know, by the Treasury, that Treasury sources, etc., that, you know, FOBTs would, you know, would be heavy, more heavily, I guess, like regulated from this budget onwards. And then clearly didn't happen... But also, interestingly, she hinted in her resignation letter at the fact that basically some of the parties managed to convince the government to actually kind of like delay that move. And so fingers have been pointed at our best friend, friend of the podcast, <laughs> uh, Philip Davies, because he is someone who who was against, you know, the move to start with. But also, interestingly, has received, I believe the professional term is, a shit ton of hospitality <laughs> from bookies in general. Does he have his own sports direct mug in his local bookies? <laughs> <laughs> they call him the governor whenever he walks in. <laughs> but uh, but also, interestingly, that yeah, other interesting fact about Philip Davies is that his partner is Esther McVeigh, who is in the cabinet. And it has been said that apparently Esther McVeigh was one of the people in cabinet meetings arguing against that change to FOBTs. And also, actually, like, she has gone through, you know, like, for example, Philip Davies went to the races, um, I can't remember when, a few months ago, and that was, you know, all declared um, and everything. But his guest, the person who went with him, was Esther McVeigh. So it's not about saying, you know, this is definitely what happened or she did X because of Y, but clearly I think it does raise some questions over, you know, over what happened there and, you know, how those decisions were taken, both by, by, you know, kind of Philip Davies, Esther McVeigh, but also Number 10 in the Treasury. Is there any moral justification for delaying this? Because it seems like these machines are so exploitative. People rack up, the most vulnerable people rack up these huge debts. And then you have privileged people like uh, Philip Davies sort of arguing to keep them in business. Is there any sort of like honourable argument to justify the delay? 
I really don't think so. But also I think the thing, like even looking at from a political perspective, like I think that it is kind of like nearly comical. I remember a few days before that all went down, I had a drink with a Conservative MP kind of talking about the party and what was going on and whatever and obviously everything was bleak and doom and gloom and fighting and whatever and like genuine coincidence we got chatting about Tracy Crouch and he said you know but she, like she is one of the like only like properly good ministers and I'm so happy she's there and he seems really happy and it's really great and then like literally three days later I was like no no the one thing you liked oh. <laughs> about what's going on is dead now so poor Tracy but at least maybe her brother Peter will treat her <laughs> maybe go on a nice family holiday how long did you wait to make that joke <laughs> don't bully me Marie I can I can report you now. <laughs> well, actually, no, you can't. Well, not quite yet. But, uh, but actually, you know, on that topic, and I think that's what you were guessing at, that report has recently come out on uh, bullying and harassing in the Houses of Parliament by MPs and by senior members of staff. And that's kind of, like, made a lot of waves recently. And I think this is kind of going to be an ongoing conversation for for a long time, hopefully, because I think this is something that has needed to be talked about for a long time. What do you make of it? I mean, you're writing a book about gossip in Parliament at the moment. Thank you. <laughs> Checks in the post. <laughs> is this a big issue in the house? Because it seems like a place where alcohol is subsidised. Everybody works crazy hours. Everybody is like, you know, all these crazy, tiny, mini little power structures where people just work for certain MPs. It doesn't seem the most healthy place <laughs> for uh, for people to be working. I know it's really not. And I feel like, you know, even as someone who's just kind of been, I guess, you know, like working around Parliament for about three and a half years now, I have heard absolutely countless stories of MPs being absolutely awful to their staff. So, you know, some of them, you know, there's the sexual harassment stuff, which I think we've talked about before. But like even beyond that, just like staffers being treated horribly. And there's a whole range as well, I think, which is quite interesting. So I think obviously you have the people who are genuine sort of like awful human beings, like genuine, you know, sociopaths and he treat their staff appallingly. But also I think quite a lot of them, so that's kind of, yeah, mixed in with the fact that... So MPs get elected, and they, you know, a lot of them will never have been in management positions or anything, and so they're kind of expected to hire people and form an office and kind of, you know, start doing that and kind of run effectively this small business, you know, with anything from one to four staffers. So, you know, they have no idea how to do it, but also because there's effectively no HR in Parliament, so even if there are problems, and occasionally, you know, it could be problems I think could be solved if a third party could get involved and say okay you know like both sides have issues on this but that does not exist and also staffers are directly hired by their MP so not by the party not by the House of Commons they're just hired by their MP so and you know and I've heard that from so many people before I like, you know friends or otherwise like if there's a problem even the smallest problem with the MP the problem is like who do you talk to so there's definitely one problem about you know the nature I think of MPs and I think that's ultimately going to be quite hard to change but also what can be changed and should change really quickly is just, you know, how you deal with that. Just get yeah, HR, just get, you know, Brenda from HR, get her to come down from Swindon <laughs> and she'll probably sort it out. But surely you have a Speaker of the House. They're in charge of the House of Commons. Surely if there's any problems, you would just go to John Burko and he would solve them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, given that there's been many allegations of bullying against John Burko as well, then he's not exactly the best person to talk about. And but actually, you know, with that being said, I think that was really frustrating. So when the Cox report came out... Very quickly. No, no, I think, you know, part of the report did say that, you know, all of this happened basically with the knowledge of the Speaker of the House and that was a massive issue. And so they didn't quite name Burko, but everyone knew who they were talking about. Very, very quickly, it just kind of turned among MPs as a debate 
effectively saying, you know, John Burko, yay or nay, which is really not <laughs> this report coming out saying, you know, these there are these like massive structural issues that touch on, you know, so many like vulnerable people and everything. And then MP suddenly went, do you like the speaker? Because I don't like the speaker, but I like the speaker, which is infuriating. So John Burko, he's so he's got a reputation for being bully, being difficult to work with, but he's also got a reputation for being sort of quite anti-Brexit and will really pull up the government if it tries to do any sort of like sneaky <laughs> sneaky Brexit deals. I don't know what the technical term for <laughs> sneaky Brexit deals. So if a lot of Labour people are wary of getting rid of him because they kind of think he is, he's got the authority in the House they can trust. So they want to keep him as Speaker of the House until Brexit is sorted. Is that a sort of a, a deal that is a good deal to make? To keep somebody who is a bully in that position of authority just because we like his opinions on Brexit? I don't think so. And I think, you know, like for a number of reasons. The first one being that Actually, you know, the thing about Burko is that, you know, to be fair to him, I think he does really value the kind of like power of the House of Commons and the power of backbenchers and kind of scrutiny by the backbenchers of the executive. And I think that is important, obviously. But also, you know, I think that some of the people who said they wanted Burko to stay, their argument was effectively, oh, you know, we think that whoever becomes Speaker instead, if that were mm-hmm. to happen, would just get tricked by the government and the government could get their way on everything. And I'm not sure that's the case. You know, like the next Speaker will probably be Lindsay Hoyle, who's currently the chair man of ways and means um, and you know the one who already does the budget and everything and like, he's been deputy speaker for a long time you know that is someone who knows what he's doing or even you know Eleanor Lang or like, any of the deputy speakers who if they were to become speaker like this is not their first rodeo so I think a yeah this is I think quite insulting to the deputy speakers and like, the potential people who could do it but also I don't know part of me is just like you know what fine yeah okay it is about timing Burko is good in terms of like debates and again kind of you know giving backbenchers more power but also, you had years and years and years and years to deal with billing in Parliament because we all know this has basically always been going on. And yeah, it's bad timing, but also, yeah, it just sucks to be you. In that case, just from the bottom of my heart, sucks to be you. <laughs> and I could have dealt with it and you didn't, so yeah. But do you not think, right, so Parliament... It's full of arseholes. The sort of thing of the personality to be an MP, to be a minister, to rise high up. You're an arsehole. You're probably not very nice. Why not just have somebody who's a bit of an arsehole but is your arsehole? John Burko is the Remainers, Labour Party's arsehole at the moment. So maybe, you know, he's our guy. Do you not know what to say to that? I feel like you've mostly just said the word arsehole quite a lot, which is... A bit disconcerting, but I don't know. So I would actually push back against that a bit. Like I do genuinely think that when you meet them, you do realise that I would say a majority of MPs are fundamentally decent people. But it's more like again, you know, and I think that's the thing that keeps coming back is the structures. Like it, it is the power structures within Parliament and the way everything works that I think can turn people into their worst selves. So uh, basically, getting John Burko to chair a response to bullying be a bit like Roman Polanski making a, a movie about. Me too, which is actually happening. <laughs> I want to die. <laughs> so speaking of being bullied, um, poor Northern Ireland has been in the news yet again with uh, discussions on what to do about a backstop. There's still... Oh, a... I'm, I'm going to have to stop you right there. Like, we have just run out of time. I'm really sorry that like, we can't actually talk about this. What are you talking about? This is, this is a podcast. We can go on forever. Like, this is really... No, we po- can't. No, we can't. Like, can you not hear this? I think, like, the fire alarm has just started. Like, we just really need to leave the building, like, now. <laughs> 
why will anybody understand where Northern Ireland is? <laughs> just no Brexit. I can't do Brexit anymore. Just such a shame that as we're about to, you know, really get in on Brexit again, you know, we just have to leave because there's a murderer on the loose in the building. Fine. It'll be. We'll just talk about it next week. <laughs> I actually hope I get murdered. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Our big topic this week is homelessness. Nothing like a nice, cheery subject to celebrate the return of changing politics. Yep. It's not fun. But as the nights get longer and colder, the increasing number of people out there on the streets is something that we just can't ignore. So today, we're going to look at how bad the situation is, see exactly who is falling through the cracks of the system, try to work out some of the stats around homelessness, and look at ways we can all work together to alleviate this serious and growing problem in the UK. To start with, it's worth thinking about who becomes homeless in Britain in 2018. Yeah, there's a kind of assumption that somebody is homeless because they must have done something wrong, and often being homeless is sort of seen as a life sentence. But the fact is that actually a lot of homeless people are able to get off the streets, and no one knows this better than Melanie Otten, who's the MP for Great Grimsby, and who was homeless when she was 17. We caught up with her and asked her about her experience. When I was 17, I found myself without anywhere to stay and had to rely on a local charity called Doorstep in Grimsby to find me somewhere to live. Um, and I ended up in a shared house with other young women um, who had had similar family breakdowns or, you know, for whatever reason, didn't have anywhere to stay. Uh, and it was a, a real lifeline. Um, that charity helped me um, access benefits. Um, they enabled me to carry on going to college um, and, of course, provided me with a roof over my head. So in one way, that's inspiring. But in another way, it's incredibly upsetting. 
if Mel was homeless today, chances are that she wouldn't be able to stop the spiral and get off the streets. And the people of Great Grimsby would be denied a really good MP. I think we all assume that there are systems in place to make sure that becoming homeless just doesn't happen except in extreme circumstances. So it's really unsettling to think that it could happen to anyone. Well, actually, yeah, like, it's scarily easy to become homeless. We spoke to Mel about how precarious the situation is. One of the stories that stays with me, when I first got this job, I went to, I, I visited lots of homelessness charities. Um, and in London, I uh, had a, uh, a visit with one of the big charities. And they were saying that with their outreach work, they'd met a woman who was um, just bedding down for the night at one of the big railway stations. Um, and she... Um, was just on her laptop finishing off her tax return. And the reason for her homelessness is because she was self-employed. She didn't have a permanent job. Um, You know, it was based on uh, part of the gig economy, which so many people are reliant on now. Uh, And that precarious element around work, I think, is a big driver. Um, And affordability of properties, particularly in, in the capital but in cities around the country. So it really could be anyone. But those who are most at risk are people who have chaotic lifestyles, so perhaps who do have drug and alcohol issues, or who have mental health issues. Um, And perhaps that comes as a result of um, a a family breakdown, you know, marital breakdown. Um, And people who are single are always going to struggle when it comes to accessing um, social rental properties um, because when it comes to priority lists they tend to be at the bottom. So just how bad is the situation right now in the UK? It is not good. Here's Mel again with some really harrowing stats. If we're talking about rough sleeping and homelessness covers everything it's not just rough sleeping but but that is the most visible element of it and probably the most heartbreaking element of it. We're looking at around 4,800 people across the country on any given night I dispute that figure to some degree because I know that's only based on spot checks on particular nights. So if I look at my local area and the uh, local outreach charity there, they will tell me that official government statistics say that there are about 20 uh, rough sleepers in my borough. But they will tell me, well, we know of at least 50 to 60. So if that is replicated across the whole of the country, then I think that that figure would be a lot higher. Um, since 2010, we have seen it rise by 180%, which is just phenomenal. It's huge. And it's, I think the, the problem has been that the government, when they uh, came in in 2010, they didn't see it as an issue because such a lot of effort had been put in through uh, the, the 2000s to drive homelessness down and to support those people who were vulnerable and at risk of homelessness. And so in some respects, I think the government thought it was job done. And so we've seen through austerity all of the support measures that were in place, whether it's through local authorities, well, mainly through local authorities, actually, because they are the organisations that tend to uh, fund homelessness charities in their local areas. But that combined with the impact on welfare um, and a reduction in access to social homes um, has made this problem Uh, ever more visible and evident. But those stats are only according to crisis. What are the government's statistics on homelessness? Well, that's part of the problem. The government does not keep good records on homelessness at all. Government doesn't have a measure or a facility to collect this information centrally. 
So there are local authority statistics, but there is nothing combined and there is nothing certain. So I know, for example, in my constituency that um, a homeless man uh, was killed this year and people who are rough sleeping are so much more vulnerable to attack. This is not just dying because of extreme weather conditions or health issues that people might have. We, you know, people who are rough sleeping notoriously have much poorer health, as you might expect. But they are very vulnerable to attacks. Uh, you know, if they are sleeping in a town centre or sleeping in a city centre, if people have been out, uh, you know, unfortunately, they might be targeted, um, which is a, a dreadful cruelty. Um, when I've asked the government about this. There hasn't really seemed to be any um, acknowledgement or recognition that they should be doing more about it. Um, we'll see some discussion, I suspect, over winter, but this isn't just an exclusively winter issue. Until you know the scale of the problem, you can't do much to combat it. But we do have good news on this. We're joined by Maeve McLenahan from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Maeve, could you tell us about the work you've been doing on this project? For the past uh, almost nine months now, we've been working on a project with networks of journalists all across the country where we've been trying to track how and when people are dying homeless in the UK. Uh, because back in around February, I, I started out with quite a simple question, which was, you know, is this getting worse? Is it getting better? And when trying to answer that question, I came to the realisation that actually nobody counts how and when people are dying homeless. Um, anywhere in the UK and so that was something that we wanted to to raise awareness of and to try and fill the evidentiary void that existed at that time. And so like, how come it is that those figures had not been counted and you know have, have you spoken to officials have they kind of explained why you know you were the ones to do that and not someone kind of internally? Yeah so I spoke to, to loads of people and um, you know I called coroner's offices, hospitals, uh, local government, central government, police um, and everybody seemed to think somebody else would probably hold that information. So they said, we don't count, but but probably try these people, and they probably do. It just seemed to be something that was falling through the gaps, really. You know, obviously there, there are death records, and the coroner's office, um, you know, holds death records for people, but there's no kind of tick box that notes how when people are, are specifically dying if they're homeless. So some coroners might have been recording that, but not everybody was. So we had to do a kind of jigsawing together, a piece of work that, that put together sources from, from people that worked on the ground in charities, some places, uh, you know, some councils might have been keeping their own ad hoc lists. It was really a kind of patching things together as and when we could. What data did you end up finding that how many homeless people have died? Since the 1st of October last year, which is when we started counting, we found that there's been at least 484 people that have died homeless all across the UK. But that is likely to be, sadly, a, an underestimate. As, as I explained, these are just, you know, people that we've heard of, that we've managed to collect the names and the details of. There's probably many, many more people than that. But still, it's, you know, a shocking total. What was the age range of people who um, died homeless? In our database, it ranges from 18 as the youngest up to 94, um, which I believe is in Northern Ireland. So... A kind of really shocking range, but in some cases, you know, people in the 80s that had died sleeping rough on the street. And was there any patterns that you found that you were surprised by? The fact that there wasn't a pattern was surprising in a sense. You think that, you know, 
that's this one type of person that people consider as homeless. But actually, there was a whole range of people. There was uh, a quantum physicist that died after he'd been living in his car. There was, you know, mothers of four that that died while, you know, they made kind of small gardens in the patches where they were sleeping rough. There was a whole kind of range of things. And I went to some of the funerals of some of these people and met their loved ones. And it was really interesting to see that these weren't isolated, solitary figures. They were people that were surrounded by, by loved ones, but for whatever reason, were um, found themselves homeless. And so now you've got all this data, actually, that have you spoken since to more, like, let's say, local authorities or the government, or, like, are there any plans for, basically, people who are not you to kind of, like, start actually keeping track of this? Since we started our project, the Office for National Statistics actually got in touch and were using our database to come up with their own methodology for looking at estimates of um, homeless deaths. And they said they're going to produce experimental figures on those later this year which is really important because like I say there was just this, this void in the evidence people didn't know if and when it was happening and um, so that's really important and now in Scotland the similar body there is looking to do the same thing so that's been hugely gratifying to see people you know taking this seriously we've also seen some councils and local safeguarding boards saying that off the back of this reporting um, they're going to do their own reviews into what's going on in their area um, to try and get to the bottom of it, to try and learn lessons. That's gratifying too. And that, that came out of the fact that we worked with a network of local journalists to get this story out. So while we worked on the national story, we had reporters in Leeds, in Brighton, in Bristol, in Birmingham, all across the country, in Belfast, Glasgow, writing about what was happening in their areas, which meant that then, you know, their local councils really understood, you know, how they fit into this national picture. Were people listening who are, you know, finding out more about it and upset by, you know, uh, the statistics, what advice would you give for people who want to help? There's a whole range of things you can do. I mean, one in terms of tracking and commemorating people that have died, we, we are still collating names and stories on that at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So if you do know somebody and you don't think they're in our database, um, then please do let us know. But I, I think calling on these councils and safeguarding adult boards to review, properly review deaths when they happen so that lessons can be learnt, and then, you know, what I really heard from around the country is that often it's, it's the simple things. It's, you know, volunteering some time to help serve some hot food somewhere or just talking to people and giving them the time of day when you pass them. I think it can be all too easy to, especially with, with people sleeping rough, to kind of walk by and think that person is beyond help or nothing I can do. But I think what I've learned is that, you know, people are saved sometimes by individuals' um, actions and sometimes just a kind word can, can help somebody through a tough time. So, yeah, there's a whole range of things. It's sometimes a quite a confusing thing whether to give money or to give food or whether it's better to give to a charity. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've definitely heard different schools of thought on this. I've gone and talked to quite a lot of people in the sector and some people you know, take that that, that view that um, if people are struggling with substance abuse issues, that could be temptation. Maybe it's better to give to a soup kitchen or someone that can help. Streets Link, for example, that's one of the easiest things you can do is just alert Street Link that somebody is there and they can come out and do their own assessment. But then there's others that take that, you know, the view that people can make their own choices and we don't want to make assumptions about people's backgrounds. So 
I personally, I have not got my head around what the right thing is to do there. I think sometimes I take it on an ad hoc basis as to the the kind of situation as I see it at that moment. But I'm not sure there is an, an easy answer. I'm sure people would argue passionately either way. Thank you so much. That was super interesting okay. and yeah, yeah, incredibly depressing. I know, it's so grim, isn't it? But thank you for covering it. So download the Streetlink app. So it's an app that allows you to send information about the location and well-being of rough sleepers to the local council, where they can send out people who can help them. It's a way to make a tangible difference for homeless people in your area. So that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to like and subscribe on Twitter, Facebook, and of course, the Matt Hancock app. Seriously, guys, let's keep that platform alive. We're the only ones who can now. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Au revoir. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.